when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's Friday, July 3rd, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 326. I'm your host, Austin Walker. I'm joined today by Ricardo Contreras. Hi. Rob Zachney. Better to be three hours too soon than a minute too late. William Shakespeare, who clearly never dated. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. And Patrick Klepek. All right. I need people to write in with their experiences with cotton, candy, grapes, and or wine. We need to know... Uh, we spent a lot of time in the pre-show talking yeah. about cotton candy, grapes, and wine, and I, I need I need someone to weigh in. What are those? Just wait. You'll find out in uh, like an hour, hour and twenty-five <laughs> minutes, Some, somewhere in that full space. full circle. I just see I didn't put the request in in the pre-show, but yeah, uh huh. Um, today we are going to do a deep dive into our question bucket, partially because we've been saying we're going to do one of these for a minute, and then partially because. Um, we there's like a bunch of stuff we want to hit, but like, what's the format for hitting it? And the answer is, y'all already asked us questions related to this. So let me just dive right in. This one comes in from P.S. Who says, I'm sure I'm not the only person feeling this, but a great deal uh, of the past couple of years have been spent under a degree of existential dread, both because of our political system and now because of the direness of the threat of global warming. I have a note. From Austin, this came in before lockdown. Uh, <laughs> I will what, what day? What day? Does you have a date? I, you know, um, let me. I, I bet I can get a date. I can get a date. Uh, let me just do a search. This comes in. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to okay. tell you the date. <laughs> well before lockdown. Um. Well before lockdown. <laughs> like twenty, still twenty twenty. No. no, I have found oh. my media consumption changed somewhat. I both lean into the terrible things, reading about reading the collapse subreddit, uh, listening to books and podcasts about global warming, and looking for things that are gentle or at least feel gentle, gentle like Midsummer Murders and uh, the Great British ba- Baking Show. I no longer have an appetite for shows with lots of human drama or emotional suffering because my free time is as limited as it is. Doesn't feel up to it. Uh, during times when you live under dread, how did your media consumption change? And what kinds of media helped you conquer or at least blunt that dread? And I thought this question from November of 2018 <laughs> was a good one for uh, letting us talk about the sort of stuff we've been we've been watching and, and reading and thinking about during uh, during lockdown. Because and it was a couple of shows that we've we've all been hovering around or or at least chatting about here or there. The one that we brought up last Monday was. The Last Dance, and I don't think yesterday we were considering doing an entire like waypoints about The Last Dance. Oh, and my, I jokingly I had said, such a yeah, this exchange is terrific. I said, I said, uh, well, I don't think that most of us. <laughs> no, I said I don't think that we have notes 
uh, and I haven't watched it since it came out. And Rob, Rob has notes. <laughs> of course, Rob he does. is Rob. <laughs> I figured I we Rob. might want to talk about it at some point. So, I just <laughs> so you took notes. You notes. took notes contemporaneously at the time that you were watching it. Yeah. Incredible. Patrick, Incredible. Why do you think why do you think I go through like three or four it. notebooks a year? I take notes on everything. <laughs> Amazing. So this is it. This is our designated moment where you can talk about The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan docu-series that ran uh, on ESPN earlier. Okay, so in here's why this resonated so much. Uh-huh. Like here's my here's my theory. This is why <laughs> yeah. this is like this is why this thing caught fire. It wasn't just because there's like this bottomless thirst for sports uh, no. when this when this came out. That but helps. also because like the arc of this thing is all 80s and 90s nostalgia. And 100%. it's about the collapse of an empire. Like the last dance is about how do we go from the boom times of the 80s to the like imperviousness of the 90s Bulls dynasty to the sudden destruction by choice of that powerhouse. And I think that is one of the like subtext of the entire thing. Like uh-huh. people like one of the reasons this resonates is because you're staring at the nineties bulls and you're going like, how did they rise so fast? And how did they, how did they fuck it up so quickly? And that is a story we are asking about a lot of things right now. That is a question <laughs> we're asking about a lot of things right now. Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting there is I think that there is a naive reading of that show that leaves you with what I think was one of the most well-echoed um, uh, or most echoed uh, responses. It was like, they definitely had three more seasons in them. They definitely could have kept winning. They definitely could have kept – why didn't they just stay together? They should have just stayed together. And the reason that that, that is naive is because all of the reasons they didn't stay together were very clear even in this very like uh, sweetened up – docu-series, um, there, there were lots of contradictions at the heart of that team with their relationship with management, with the way that some of the players like Scottie Pippen had been had been paid, um, with the way that Jordan was treating people. A lot of that stuff, would they have stayed on in a different circumstance? Yes. But the circumstances were not that. Uh, and in a similar way, people talk about and think about the 90s of America, to extend your your metaphor here, in that same way. It was like, well, why don't we just keep doing that? I was like, well, because there were contradictions at work inside of the 90s of America that were leading to the 2000s. And what you maybe have to do is broaden the scope. You have to not just look at the play on the field. You have to look at what's happening in the back room. You have to look at what's happening around the entire uh, the, the entire league to, to, again, further the metaphor. But when you look at the whole league, you come to understand that no dynasty could, la- could last at that point further, especially one that has a hostile relationship with parts of management that are important, especially one in which major important players are being underpaid and they're, they're, and and the change in what pay looks like across the league has happened such. There will be other offers for that player elsewhere that are more competitive. Um, and, and and frankly, one in which like the the joy of winning has has disappeared, right? Like there's some of those later wins in that in that uh, series are just like yeah, we did it again. Like I'm happy we did. I have, I'm happy I'm back. I'm happy we did it again. Uh, but they don't have that like overwhelming celebratory like you know vigor of of some of the early wins. It was a it was a fascinating series to watch because although I uh, would self describe as a Chicago Bulls fan and that I rooted for that team in the '90s. What was fascinating about the documentary was the realization that no, I like culturally was exposed to the Chicago Bulls and was swept in in a local sports team that was extremely successful. And Michael Jordan was at like the heart of so much of 
culture and media at a very specific time and growing up, but I knew fuck all about basketball or the Bulls <laughs> or their dynamic or even what made them good. That's right. what was like so re- revelatory about watching the the, the, the series was like fundamentally understanding, you know, to the degree that Michael Jordan was willing to expose himself and to the degree that was more of a memoir than it was a documentary um, in which Michael Jordan settled old scores. But it was, it was interesting because I, if you were to ask me prior to watching it, I, I don't know that I could have described to you too much in detail about the bulls or <laughs> Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen or Horace Grant, other than like the cultural stuff that had stuck with me. And so actually watching it and seeing the fundamentals of play, that's, you you know, at the time that was happening when I was 10, there was no way to internalize that. I didn't, I could tell you that the triangle existed because I know, because I I heard it enough times um, over the years, but I I didn't know what it meant. And so it was actually really fascinating to watch that. Mm -hmm. I thought the one, one of the things that it did well, other than being melodramatic in a gossipy way was do like a pretty decent job of to like, I, I watched it all with my wife. I at first was like, do you actually want to watch nine fucking episodes of this? Um, it's like, I don't want, like I could do this on my own. And she was like, no, actually part of the reason the this, this show was so good is that it, it's like really good at explaining to someone that doesn't really understand basketball or understands, you know, you throw on a ball and it goes in a hoop. But like, how do you explain that to, to the average person? Um, what made him special, what made the team special and what made individual players important. That's why I thought the digressions between all the different players and their backgrounds that then explained why they were fundamental to different elements of the team at different points in time were, were really interesting. I just came away with it like as a, like much more informed on why they were, why they were such a special and interesting team, even outside of like every episode being, you know, what person Michael Jordan wanted to, to knock down. God, the, the rampant, like, uh, not just beef, but vendetta making that Jordan had is 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 definitely a uh, a his high own myth making is yeah, impressive. Absolutely, I don't believe 100%. the pizza story at no, all. Not at all. Not all. not for one and fucking that second. people do to me is like a sort of collaborative myth making. They want to believe that. They want to believe the only way that Michael Jordan could get sick in the middle of an important series is if he'd been poisoned well, by the Utah all- Jazz. <laughs> But also the, the you know there's, there's there's a digression at some point in which they you know and you hear this about a lot of um, longstanding high level uh, uh, athletes you know it's often mentioned about you know folks like Tom Brady who like sustain a high level of play for a long period of time in which they have to invent grudges right. and slights in order to motivate themselves and so you know like that was the fascinating part about like the pizza store it's like well no he's just inventing a new version of the same slight. To put into the myth like he is well, you know, this is something that Kobe Bryant tried desperately to emulate and never quite grasped because it always came across as talented as a player as he was always came across as a Michael Jordan imitator as opposed to someone uh, on this level, like on the, on the cultural level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just really fascinating to see that kind of laid out um, how he like self-motivated. And I found the the bullshit pizza story to just be a natural extension where he's like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to create a bunch of new stories out of this, this own myth that maybe he even believe, maybe he believes it. I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't yeah. know. I mean, do you think he believes all of the small little things, the like golf insult or the, 
like someone briefly said something behind your back about how they were going to stop you. I bet he believes it in the moment and then yeah. is gone and he would admit to you like, yeah, you know, I just needed something. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the real, this documentary does get a little tedious in places because so much of it is about, and here's how Jordan motivated himself in this incident. And it's always the uh-huh. same story, right? It's always like, and then that really pissed me off. And it's like, Oh, like, okay, it's like watching him charge up his cyan powers, like, again and again, uh like, just, oh, here's my petty beef, and (laughs) then everyone's like, and then he sank a bunch of shots, he really went off, and like... He's good. Yeah, like, I think, to me, like, one of the things that really drove, like, even magic, magic was trying to make it sound fun, but even magic seemed a little tired of like just the guy, right? As he's talking about the, the Barcelona practice with the dream team. He's just like, yeah, um, it was, he got real pissed and (laughs) he just played really hard. That's, that's that's cool to get your ass beat by Michael Jordan. Now let's do that for nine, nine, nine hours. And and then I think the other part is it ends up because the show always has to return to Jordan as its central figure. You do end up like, I'd have watched an entire documentary about Dennis Rodman. Like, I'm just like, tell me more about that guy. Tell me more about Phil Jackson's relationship with all these egos and like conflicting players. Like, and also with worldwide spiritualism and his his uh, uh, interest in North American indigenous tribal faith. And he <laughs> Phil Jackson has a lot going. He was a hippie, basically. He was like a hippie basketball player who became the the one of the most the, the winningest coach at this point. Yes, he yeah, yeah, because so, yeah. His, his Lakers uh, run was also incredible. So uh, yeah, they kind of just gloss over that as like an yeah. interesting personality quirk that allowed him to manage a bunch of personalities without really like it, like I just wanted like like pause and be like, "Can I submit a user question? Why? <laughs> what got you into this?" You know, Please walk I, us like through. <laughs> There um, must have been a moment um but Rob, to your point, the fact that they have to stop, they have to come back around to Jordan, is kind of diminishes the breadth of what this could have been. Yeah. Also, um, no fan, none of his fam- his family, not represented at all. I mean, his mother briefly in it. His mother, I think yeah, one of his right. brothers is briefly in it. But then, uh, I found it like genuinely weird that his children were not featured until the very, very end. Um, to like sort of be sort of like a, a color commentary for uh, like, they clearly don't remember much about that era cause they were kids, but I just thought it was strange that like for, for as much as the, the series spends talking about the, the myth and the cultural impact and the fact that he was a like beloved cultural figure as opposed to today, which I don't know that you could even have a Michael Jordan like figure, like, you know, LeBron's like pretty close, but like yeah. I don't know. It's just it's just difficult to have people more or less universally love a figure of of any regard, like in athletics or, or otherwise. But I just thought it was a little strange. I mean, they do the obviously the the gambling stuff, but otherwise, I don't know. They just don't really. There's just not much about there's not much about him in that regard, other than like part of his origin story at the at the top. We all read the thing that was it Sports Illustrated or ESPN that did the profile of him when he turned fifty. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And that's the that's the thing. Like, you almost need, none of that's in yeah. There. You need to hold that piece in your yeah. mind as you look at him, because I think to me, like with that piece in mind, he cuts a sad figure alone in that cavernous living room with the ocean behind him, the 
whiskey level on that glass rising and falling. But like <laughs> you read that piece about him at the age of 50 as he's coming to terms with the fact like he doesn't have it anymore. Um, he has flashes of it, but it's just it's gone. He can't sustain performance. He's an he, he's an aging uh, he's an aging man. What's the, the there's like an <clears throat> anecdote in there where like one of the one of the players would it came in because he's you know the owner of the really terrible Charlotte Hornets. He's been by all accounts like a <laughs> really really bad NBA owner. Um, and like one player came in and he was able to like turn it on for like a short like pick up one on one game and just schooled like this you know young. Uh, young player and then the moment it's over like more or less collapses to the floor and just like it all goes out of him where like he can just ratchet it up for like this brief moment and show you a bit of like what he was at his peak right but by you know by and large that has you know time has taken at him like it does everyone else any other thoughts on the last i mean again we could go this could be a series this could be a uh be good and we watch it given given the length <laughs> and depth of it all um, I guess I guess my final question here, um, uh, especially for Rob, who I know is taking a lot of notes, is <laughs> to the degree that it respect it, the notes. I, I do respect the notes. I res- the, the notes <clears throat> the, the notes help. As a as a notes writer, I didn't write notes about this, and I didn't think we were going to do this. Uh, but as a as a notes writer, uh, I, I respect the notes. Um, where where did you come across at the end, feeling like it had? I guess earlier you said it was a memoir as much as it was a documentary. Um, and I, I think all of us on the call recognize that documentaries, that, that no documentary is a perfect record of knowledge, a perfect record of truth. All documentary, all documentaries are biased. All documentaries have a perspective and have been edited such to, to kind of curate a, a particular narrative. Um, um, but I'm curious if you have any final takeaways there in terms of what that guiding hand of Jordan was on this thing and and to the degree by which it 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 may there's a generation of people who didn't know jordan the way we grew up with jordan and now they have this and i'm curious if you have thoughts on in that direction because for me that that feels like there's a degree to which he's getting another generation he's like this is this is part of the lebron jordan war but it's also just part of kind of cleansing jordan's own history and making it we don't have to talk about the wizards we don't have to talk about what happened after this the end of jordan's <clears throat> reign was here uh, you know uh, uh, it's not a, the wizards are not throne. even mentioned in that doc. no they're not even mentioned the, not even this mentioned. is his chance to say oh yeah the story ended here oh right. oh that other trilogy that that's 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 the, the prequels the prequels yeah no yeah yeah that's that's not real uh no i i think I think to a degree that's that's a big part of it. I, I think so. There was a lot of criticism that like the hand of Jordan of this was just too, on on this was just too heavy. The documentary just feels too much like a media product for him. I actually think the the documentary does a decent job of working within those constraints and pushing against them a little bit. Um, there's a lot of great compromised documentaries, uh, and you can still kind of start getting at some truth. Even within the, you can only conceal so much, right? Like Jordan wants this to be a image burnishing uh, exercise, but he's kind of a tedious figure in his own documentary. And that can't be concealed because Jordan can't stop being who he is. Uh, but I, I think the where, where it did frustrate me the most was this feeling of um, everything always has to come back to him. Like, just a small detail. Do you remember how, um, well, actually the Rodman stuff is a perfect example. Everything is framed as, as in Rodman's relationship with, with, uh, with Jordan. And 
the sequences that are recounted and then Phil Jackson turning to Jordan. Like in every story, people are just turning to Michael and being like, hey, what should we do here, man? You think Phil Jackson really needed like Jordan to weigh in on like how to manage the delicate psyches of the personalities around him? It's preposterous. And I think this is one of the things Horace Grant and a couple other people brought up as well. The notion that the notion that Jordan was actually the captain of that team in the psychological sense doesn't really hold up. But in that story, he is at the center of everything. It's basically saying, oh, the 90s Bulls, Jordan co-coached that. And that just isn't right. true. No, totally. I, one of the things that I I mentioned this on Twitter probably very early on because the Isaiah, the Isaiah Thomas stuff is all fairly early. <clears throat> but I left the first half of that of that series feeling like in a different timeline or if I was a little older, I would have been a huge Isaiah Thomas stan uh, because he partially because I'm an Eagles and I grew up as like a Flyers fan and like mean, mean teams, teams that fight, teams that mm-hmm. like throw their elbows, like got me as a kid. Um, but I left feeling like, hey, if if Thomas had won as much as Jordan, we would be saying the opposite shit. Uh, like the, uh, maybe another way of saying this is what makes Isaiah Thomas's run and, 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 and makes that whole team's run, you know, uh, dirty, the the elbow shots, the attitude, all that stuff disappears and and um, kind of kind of um, gets gets uh, a kind of hagiography if they go on to win as many if they go on to to three peat. Right. If they go on to to, you know, do two, three peats in a row. Um, they get the treatment that Jordan's bullying during practice gets. They get the treatment that the weird backroom stuff gets here. It's like, oh, yeah, it's unavoidable. But really, it was just this one guy. You know, it is what it is. Um, uh, and I think you you feel that the most with Rodman's character because Rodman bridges that gap between those two teams. And suddenly, the traits that made Rodman a part of this this dirty team that – that pulled no punches and had an attitude and walked away from the, the court without saying goodbye becomes becomes quirky and even useful. He's just such a good defender. He just gets in people's faces. He just gets the ball no matter what it costs. And and yeah, he needs to go to Vegas overnight in the middle of an important series. But be that's gone just for who, two weeks. Yeah, that's just who Rodman is. You know the ice even at the time like. It sort of registered as like, this is weird. It was like tribalism in action. Chicago hated Dennis Rodman. Like, right. Dennis Rodman's game was infuriating to watch. If you were, if he was not your player, he was an infuriating dude. <laughs> and that's even setting aside the fact that, like, oh, you know, Dennis Rodman is weird. He's transgressive in ways that, like, very straight laced 90s America really rejected and judged very harshly, right? Like, Every, and, that, and that doc did not. That's no. that's what like a, a Rodman doc would have been more fascinating to dig into. Is he is such a interesting cultural figure for for holding up a mirror to like '90s cultural values in a way that 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 the Jordan series just barely. I mean, I remember so much of that. Like you know, people talking about oh why wow, you know Rodman would like walk around in a wedding dress just just to do it. Or I think when he got married, he he wore a wedding dress. I want to say was the the story, but just a a really fascinating guy. And then now he goes to North Korea. Well, yeah. And yeah, like, <laughs> look, they ain't all, is that his wizards? The bits ain't all going to like, be you know, winners. On one hand, playing just a little too long. On the other hand, you know, going to fascist yeah. regimes and, you know, palling around, you know, we all have our, our, but our issues as we enter our old age. I think, uh, 
but but I, it was it was just so funny to me to see the way like Chicago rallied around Dennis Rodman once he became a ball. It was so funny the way like oh man he's so great. Really just have to, just have to appreciate the craft of his game. And like, look, look, Rob, if Aaron Rodgers said, I'm leaving the Packers and coming to the Bears, <laughs> leave it all behind, my friend. You come, come. I, I, will, I will root for you happily. Are there any other thoughts here in The Last Dance? Are there any other shows you want to shout out there or, or media that you've been consuming in this particular moment of crisis and existential dread? I'll say that I lean fully in. Like, give okay. me those bad vibes. Like, just. Okay. Just we're in Hell World. I want to spend all my time in Hell World, pretty much. That and the occasional detour to escapism, but like uh, you know, a series that I found new resonance with uh in the midst of all this is Counterpart, which is a world where mm. there's two parallel realities, one of which is like what prior to this we would have recognized as our world, where everything is normal and neoliberal and you know, kind of vaguely shitty and corrupt, but like normal as we would call it and then the other world is a world where life has never gone back to normal because of a plague and it's about how those two realities diverged and i'm like yes i love this show now this show rules give me more of this um worth checking out i think it's on amazon but yeah that's that's my mode like the the first thing i did when this all started was i'm gonna play vampire again that was a good decision uh, no, I'm, 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 I am with Rob. I'd like to revel in, you know, yeah, I was the first person to watch, you know, a pan, you know, the outbreak and other pandemic films. The moment this happened, I was like, cool, let's just, let's just really just <laughs> that naughty monkey in this. Yeah. But that movie is so fucking bad. <laughs> I like highly recommend watching it, but it's so fucking bad. Um, uh, the, uh, we just watched, uh, my wife and I just, uh, blew through, uh, Hulu's the great, um, which is written by, the uh, screenwriter that did the favorite um, from uh, a year oh, or two back. I love is, the favorite. Um, so imagine that spun out to a whole series and is about sort of the rise of Catherine the Great in Russia. Um, it's mm. tremendous. Um, I forget the actor who who is the guy. Uh, he was Cyclops in those movies, wasn't he? Yeah. What is um, Nicholas, Nicholas Holt? Holt. Holt. Um, he makes, as someone pointed out, someone uh, some incredible. To acting choices in this show that when I mentioned I'd watched it, someone on Twitter put it perfectly, which is like he makes some very Nicholas Cageian choices <laughs> in how he chooses to portray um, his his character, and yeah, it's 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 really a delight. If if you liked the favorite at all, this uh, the great is um, a, a lot of a lot of fun, um, and uh, yeah, recommended. Awesome, Kata, what are you getting to? It's mostly. The same stuff, just a lot of it. Like, oh, sure. I just uh, feel like I've been burning through a lot of backlog in the anime area specifically. Just feels like <laughs> there's more <laughs> time to... He drills like through. This, there's this sun, there's like this little like I, I, feel, I kind of felt called out by even asking him, Kato, uh-huh. what are you watching? He's like, um specifically Um People yeah. want to know what anime you're watching, Kato. I'm, they do. I'm watching I'm watching Gundam Wing. Uh shout outs to the Great Gundam Project. I'm following along with them. 
uh, on their watch of that, and I'm enjoying it a lot more than I ever had before, which is great. It's good. Yeah, uh, it turns out it's show fucking real turns good. turns out it's great. Uh, I have issues with the dub that I feel like I had uh, trouble reading that series the way that I'm reading it now. Because I think the dub is bad, but anyways. Yeah, the dub. Yes, yes, yes. The dub <laughs> um, is very strange. Yeah, I love the dub, but that's because I grew up with it, and it's like that's, that's right. Just, I, think, I feel like that's part of why I bounced off as a kid was like that. I could not parse the dub. I was like too small for that to understand. Sure. The pacing of that with the dub, anyways. Um, and actually, a bunch of uh, Netflix anime, like Netflix, suddenly has like a lot of good original anime shows that it's putting out. Um, I'm watching Doro Hedoro right now, which is really fucking good. Like I love, and, um, they're doing this, uh, interesting thing with the animation where it's all like, it's 3d models, but they've got this really great filter on that makes it look, uh, really sim. Like they can, they can, um, they've approximated the look of the manga really well, even though it's 3d models, which is interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just like burning through. What else did I watch? I watched, I watched Beastars. I watched, um, what else? Did I, I finished something else recently. I can't forget. I'm watching so many of them, like, back to back to back. All short shows, it turns out. Short shows are good. Things you can complete, I think, right. are, are like high on my list them. of things here. Um, actually, that's not true at all. The things that I'm, what I'm doing is bouncing between a bunch of things. I'm in, like, taste mode. I'm like, hmm. I have I have wanted to to revisit Witch Hunter Robin. Mm, uh yes, I, I I have I have wanted to to uh, go back and rewatch the same episodes of what we do in the shadows that I've watched already once. Oh, season without, two. I oh, hear season two is great. Yeah, I have to rewatch was, oh season God, one before I get so to season good. two. Like this is who I am. Um, and I, like I have literally just been bouncing from thing to thing and getting like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a li- and and that's not always fulfilling, but it's actually like I don't. It's because. I feel like I have a lot of time to watch stuff that I can move through seven things slowly instead of feeling mm. like I need to like consume all of a thing at once. Like I've been watching Rob and I've talked about this before, uh, watching Clone Wars lately. It's like I've taken like a three week break from Clone Wars, but I'm not done with Clone Wars. I'm going to come back right. into it in a week. You know, like it's, you hear it's, that uh, Clone Wars? I'm coming for not you. Not done with Wars. you. You've been good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come coming <laughs> Clone, back. Clone Wars is just off somewhere trying to live its life, start a family. <laughs> knock, knock, knock. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Michael Jordan. I got a problem with Clone Wars. God. Uh, uh, what was the? I God, like, I I can't believe I've forgotten the, the the phrasing that Jordan always used in it. Um, oh, it's gonna kill me. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm looking. Oh, it the, up. the last thing I would shout out. Uh, the other thing I've been really into lately is a podcast called uh, uh, Kingcast, which is um, run by. Uh, uh, two great hosts. Scott Wampler is the, the guy I know. I don't know the the other uh, host by name, but basically they're going through a bunch of Stephen King adaptations in which they read the book and watch the movie and then invite a guest. Um, the guest gets to pick like the adaptation. And so they've done lots of just the weird stuff um, uh, that um, like that you wouldn't normally uh, like think if you made like a list of like Stephen King adaptations, like the lawnmower man. I did not know that Stephen King sued to get his name take off the lawnmower man because new line just had the rights and just slapped the lawnmower man on it, even though it has nothing to do with the short story that Stephen King wrote. <laughs> it's just a really fascinating series. If you're interested and grew up with, King, uh, like I did, and uh, they have a lot of really cool guests like Elijah Wood and some other folks. So I've I've been really enjoying listening to that. The fr- the phrase I was thinking of was it became personal to me, 
which is something Michael Jordan said a lot. But I do want to interviewed years later, and then it became personal to me. God. Uh, also, speaking of Stephen King podcast, can I pitch a, a not yet started but about to start uh, alternate King podcast because it's uh-huh. friends of the of the site? Sure. Uh, Cameron Kunzelman and um, Michael Lutz, uh, who who do Game Study Study Buddies, and who guested on one of our um, Kingdom Hearts. Uh, uh, wow, why have I forgotten the Lore name? More reasons. More reasons. It's I'm tired. I said it's tired. <laughs> That's how tired I am. Um, <clears throat> are starting a podcast called Just King Things, which is a great name <laughs> for a Stephen King podcast. Where they're going to read every every Stephen King thing in publication order and talk about it. It will probably take them about a decade. That is like what the timeline looks like to do that because it turns out Stephen King's written a lot of stuff. Uh, if you've listened to Game Study Study Buddies, you know that it, that they're great podcast hosts and have incredible conversations and are very good at getting sidetracked with uh, with setup in a way that I think if you like this podcast, you'll understand and enjoy. So Steve, Stephen King, I, I, one of the many great facts I've learned over the, listening to the, the Kingcast is that he gave up smoke. He had a lot of substance abuse issues. Wrote a lot of his great works while like using a lot of coke and um, and uh, coming to grips with his alcoholism. Um, but one of the things he eventually also gave up smoking, but apparently every night, um, there's just this unsaid thing where like after dinner, he goes for a car ride, smokes a pack of cigarettes, but he doesn't smoke and just nobody talks about it. <laughs> That's what, just what he Wait, does. What? He, Wait, he what? does, he's not a smoker. It's just at the end of the night, he goes out. Smokes a pack of cigarettes and comes home and just nobody acknowledges. So he smokes. He's a pack a day smoker. Yeah, what you're telling me is he's a pack. But he it's goes contained. Out on a drive I'm, I'm not. I just. You can't it's intermittent just a, fast like, smoking. It, <laughs> in fact, I w- I bet it's worse if you just go out and straight smoke a pack, not to pack a day. I was. It is. A, it's like on average a pack a day. I don't forget the specifics, it's but it's something like that where it's just like he's going. He's like, "Hey, this is it. I'm gonna this this one window. I smoke, and then I don't. I don't smoke. So I guess you can. Uh, that's the you know whatever it lies we tell ourselves. I just look yeah. forward to uh, all the uh, people who are gonna stumble on these podcasts because they're looking for like a men's culture podcast. Oh, the King Cast. That yeah. sounds great. Just the King Rose picking each other up. Yo, oh, you drop how do this, I pick homie? up chicks? I. <laughs> Oh, uh, what what is the Stephen King story most about being bros? I don't know. The Uber this is a real question. Nearly well enough. No, yeah, Patrick, me, me either. You, clearly, what's the what's the Patrick being Patrick. a bro? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Well, I mean, right, well, text is guys think. being dudes. That's his, I mean, that's <laughs> not really like, his not really his thing. Hmm. Usually, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Let's move on to another question. Uh, question two camp. of our deep dive question into the question <laughs> yeah. bucket. We knew what the fuck it was. This one, <laughs> this one's a little lighter. This one comes in from Andrew, who says, "What do y'all think about Star Wars Squadrons? I haven't heard anything about your thoughts on it. We didn't do a post EA episode oh, that's right. because that that I mean <laughs> that event, woof, that event <laughs> just didn't have too much going on, uh, and and I don't think it's worth like dragging that whole event necessarily. But uh, I thought Squadrons looked pretty good." Uh, I, I my guess is that that story mode is going to be that campaign is going to be pretty short. Uh, it's a forty dollars. Yeah, I'm, I'm game. worried that it's going to be Battlefront esque in that it's a tease for a game yes. that you like wish they made. I think that that is true. That is my gut. Mm-hmm. I, I would believe that. And 
Uh, I'm still yeah, forty bucks. I'll buy it and and fly around. I feel like the forty ships. bucks should be the tip of the hat, which is like that's them sort of you yeah, know this is like keep your expectations yeah. Yeah, exactly. low. Um, you know, probably a four to five hour campaign is yeah. probably what you're you're looking at there. Uh, Rob, what do you think of that thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope it's I hope it's good. Uh, I'm curious. I really want the campaign to be solid. That's like there is some sort of story content there. I hope it's I hope it's good. Yeah. Uh but it also What's what is a solid campaign for you? Is it like 10 hours? Is it like No, no, no. Let's lots not do the of fiddly thing. bits. Let's not do, let's, is it the experience. is it Well, that's, I'm giving you a couple of different things. This is what I'm trying to say. Is it is it having like uh control over what type of craft you're using? Is it like what what makes it a solid campaign for you? You know, you know those arcs in the Clone Wars where you and I are messaging each other, where it's like, "Oh man, the entire Geonosis stuff." Did you see that shit? Or yeah, like, yeah. basically, there is a type of military sci-fi that is cool as hell and also deeply procedural, right? Where like part of the drama is also seeing people tackle difficult challenges and employ tools and also the strengths of their teams in really interesting and exciting ways and to me a campaign a cool campaign would have some sort of feeling like that right where it's not completely discrete missions that don't really tie together it's like okay this is the mission where we meet the you know weird wacky secret tie fighter project you know right it's right. it's going to be more stuff like this was just supposed to be this was just supposed to be a, a normal patrol mission and then we scanned this uh this imperial you know frigate and there was some weird contraband on it and it was revealed to have been taken over by rebels and blah 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 blah. it's classic tie fighter shit yeah and and to me that's that's kind of what i want like you don't need to tell a hugely uh a hugely involved story. Like I think about the original TIE fighter game. Uh, there is a traitorous Imperial Admiral who is a background figure in a couple campaigns when you're just doing boring space cop shit for the empire. And then in, I think it's the last campaign of what was originally in the box in the TIE fighter box. Uh, the guy turns traitor and basically tries to have you killed mid-mission. And then there's an entire campaign, like 10 missions, just of the Empire trying to corral this guy, pin him down, trap his fleet, eliminate his ability to escape, and kill him. And each mission sets up the next part of that puzzle, and it gets increasingly like Harry as the guy becomes desperate and cornered. And that's kind of what I'm looking for in a game. Like, give me that, but also some characters to go with it. Like, the weakness of TIE Fighter is basically you are just, you're just a random TIE Fighter, but you're also the most important person in all the missions. There's no, there's no people in that story for the most part. Mm-hmm. Give me a little bit of that Aaron Alston Wraith Squadron stuff where, like, there is a team... There are team dynamics. There are politics surrounding it. That's the shit. And you can do that. That can be a long campaign or it can be a very short one, but it just needs to be a good, satisfying story. Yeah, I'm in. The, the pitch you just made, that's a pitch I'm, I'm curious about. Uh, I would hope that, that, I hope that, they, that, they, that they pull that off. Um, we'll see. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's one from Waz who says, Best donut flavor? I will eat a custard-filled donut any day, any time. Mm. Don't like, don't don't like anything in the donut. Donut's got to be donut? full. Oh, you want? F- I just want that dough. You don't want a cream or a jelly alone. or a- no, 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 no. Can't. So do what it. do you? What's what's what flavor of a donut? Then are you like a chocolate chocolate person? Or I like am a, a pretty like, ba- a, like yeah. I you know, so icing? I, I lived like, in uh, in San Francisco at what felt like the. Uh, beginning the of the height of boom. the hipster donut, um, yeah. <laughs> which now is everywhere. Yeah. Um, it was around the, I was living in San Francisco at the same time where it felt like everything had bacon on it mm-hmm. for no particular reason. Also, that like, put me time. off bacon for a long time. I was just like, you know what? I like bacon, but fuck bacon right now because I was just annoyed seeing it everywhere. Um, no, because I, I don't eat donuts all that often. So it's like when I have one, like just a really good chocolate donut maybe i'll go like a little adjacent to like a strawberry i had one this morning my a strawberry frosted just, i don't know how quickly frosted. we went from i don't have donuts that much to well there's morning <laughs> well this I, morning, I, what, I, what happened was so I, I normally when I'm, I'm dropping my daughter off at my mom she goes there a couple days a, a week to give us a, a little bit of a, a break for since we started working again and usually i just get her a donut i'm like you're gonna have a donut this is like a special thing you get on the way to, mm. to your grandma's house and then today she's like you know what you and mama should have a donut too. And I was like, I'm good. Like, you know, dad has enough beer. He doesn't need other, he doesn't eat, he doesn't eat candy for a reason. Like that's, and he's like, no, I need you to get a donut for you and mama. I was like, all right, <laughs> twist my arm. <laughs> get this goddamn donut. Very and I cute. had to get a strawberry donut because that's what she decided. But it was, a, it was a, you know, it was a pretty good Dunkin' Donut. Donuts are fine. They're, they're fine. you know, they're, fine. they're good. Yeah. That, like, again, as someone who lived in New York during that same period, that same like donut factory, like fancy donut period. Those donuts are good. I like those donuts, but sometimes I just want like yeah. a Dunkin' Donuts ass donut with a Dunkin' Donuts ass coffee that's just like, yeah, this is just, this is like, if there could be such a thing just called coffee water, it would be Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> coffee. Which is what I'm drinking right now. I'm drinking See? a Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I don't mind it. I'll <laughs> fuck me it's up. It's fine. Man. It gets the job done, you know? It gets the job done. It's burnt to hell. Yep. It doesn't have much flavor, but boy, it goes in your body. In terms of donut flavor, my, uh, my taste has changed a lot over the years. I used to be like a, a like diehard Boston cream fan. Mm. Um, uh, that's like what my stepdad loved. It was what my mom loved. Like my, like my parents before me, I was a Boston cream guy. <laughs> um, uh, but I've slowly become like it's just too much for me now. It is like I, I like the cream a lot. And so I'll still have one a few times a year. You know what I mean? Uh, but if I went to a if I went to a Dunkin' Donuts right now, I would probably get a glazed donut and mm. a strawberry frosted donut, or or some like that's that's the space I'm in now. Lighter, fluffier, not as not as like heavy. 
Um, there was well, the cake, the cake variant is usually when you get like the heavier. Yeah, I don't like the I, so I and I what I won't have is like a chocolate donut where it's like chocolate. Rob's all eyes just went. It's too much for me. I, I like it, I, <laughs> hmm, there are if I'm going to a fancy donut place, that's where sure. I'll get a cake donut. Right, that and makes I don't sense. do yes. that very often anymore. Rob is Rob has thoughts about this. Rob, weigh in. Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> oh boy! <Ooh. laughs> all right, here we go. So what, got I, what I'll say is the, the cake donut, I think, is generally my preferred type of donut. I think it's first of all, it's the one that feels more like a food plausibly. <laughs> no, <laughs> none of it's food. None of it's, it's all none fake. None of it's food. But there's a little bit of substance. There's like a chew to a cake donut as opposed to uh, the yeast donut, which I which I do like. But they're so ridiculous. And I think. They're cotton candy, but good. The crispy That's what thing. they are. Hell yes. yeah. There you go. That's what I want. Anyway, sorry. You get Christmas what? No, go ahead. Yeah, I got swept up in the Krispy Kreme thing, and I think that mm. ruined me for yeast donuts oh, forever. Because sure. it was like eating... Dude. Crystallized, like crystallized sugar were a donut that was it's Krispy too much. Kreme. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everyone convinced... It was like this mass delusion... Where everyone is like, Krispy Kreme's the best. Oh man, is the light on? The Krispy Kreme's are fresh. And everyone's like, hell yeah, let's get those Krispy Kreme's. And then there was this point where I was like, this is vastly inferior to Dunkin' Donuts. Like, now Dunkin' Donuts then got worse because they stopped baking fresh on site. Yeah, the the shipped in Dunkin' Donuts, not as good. Not as good as like, yeah. Uh, Also, like their whole fucking thing, their whole thing for years was that they were made on site. That was like, yeah, that was the the donut man was a good, hardworking man who just wanted to give you good donuts. If you didn't want good donuts, Entenmann's was right there. Also, really good bad donuts. They're great bad donuts. Those are the cake donuts I'll eat. <laughs> just you gotta eat the little chocolate little, shell yeah, off the oh, off I the styrofoamy. I actually won't. I'll do the powdered ones. I won't do the chocolate ones. I can't deal with the chocolate. The Edmund's chocolate stuff is just so. Uh, well, I never liked it, even when I had a, a sweeter tooth as a kid. Anyway, continue. So here's the what I'm not outgrown though. Yeah, Dunkin' Donuts used to make this donut really well. They don't anymore because it really does require being reasonably fresh. Uh, but at places that are like don't, don't, Dunkin' Donuts used to be um, in my area, neck of the woods, we have Heavenly Donuts. Uh, which is mm. real good. And the chocolate cream filled is just delicious. It's absurd. It is probably a little disgusting, but the chocolate cream is so okay. creamy and delicious. A chocolate cream is too much for me. I, I'm not a chocolate person. I feel like I'm, I, I, I mix it in, in my life. Like, you know, you can drizzle some chocolate on my life, but I can't have it as like, I don't want to get a chocolate something. I, I won't mind it if there's chocolate involved in the thing. I'm mm. just, Anyway, thank you, Waz. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to come back to Waz for some other questions. Waz sent in a brick of questions, and they were all very good, which is like not... Like a cake. Like a cake. Uh, Wait, in fact, here, let's just, here's a question. At what point does a bread become a cake? I don't... Rob? At what point does a bread become a cake? I feel like okay. this has something to do with the gluten structure. It does. Like there's The, the first thing is... It's less did, gluten. Did you let right? it rise or not? Yeah. If no, then... Yeah, so, like, did did you develop, like, long gluten strands and, like, do a rise? If you did, then you've probably made something like a bread. If you just sort of mixed everything together and baked that shit, Mm. probably closer to the cake, uh, you know, end of the spectrum. It also depends what your leavening agent is. Uh, You know, there's... I don't want to say there's no such thing as a yeasted cake, but, like... 
cakes aren't used to. <laughs> like that's just not that's just not what it is. Like the right. minute like baking powder and baking soda are your primary leaveners, again, you're in cake territory. Um and then how sweet is that shit? Mm. Is a yeah, biscuit a cake? Fair. Is what? Is a what a cake? A biscuit. It's a biscuit a cake. Yes. Okay. It's more a cake than a bread. I yeah, right? Well, in my mind, my mind wants to say bread because of because usually you put like Our butter use on cases. it. And like, yeah, but I mean, that's it's just like mm, some but people it, but put, it like fits in them. Pancake, like yeah, it fits in right. that family. Right, totally. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And don't don't trick yourself. A pancake is a cake. You're having a cake when you have yeah, pancakes. It's a cake. <laughs> um, all right, let's go. Let's swing back the other direction. <laughs> this one's from Zenith uh, in San Francisco, who says. Despite the bleak mood of the moment, which in this case is actually this particular moment, uh, uh, in order to be part of the conversation, I played through The Last of Us Part 1 and left behind DLC in preparation for the sequel. In 2013, the phrase Black Lives Matter would never have occurred to me. It would have seemed like a given, but experiencing the story in 2020 with those words etched in my heart, well, I wanted to dig into the philosophical questions behind Joel's choice and whether or not I, uh, I thought Ellie believed him, but the only thing I could think about afterwards was that there were four black characters of note in that story. The first succumbs to infection and is shot to death by the second. The second shoots himself in the head rather than live without the first. The third is shot to death by Joel to prevent her from pursuing Ellie. And the fourth, in a, in a uh, prequel, uh, gets infected uh, and does not have immunity. Uh, none of these read to me as token characters, and yet all of them are killed in the name of narrative drama. As a white male developer, like the overwhelmingly majority of employees at Naughty Dog... Uh, I don't think this person is saying that they are de- they are a developer at Naughty Dog. They're saying, as a white guy, like, yeah. da, 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 um, I cannot help but feel like I am part of the problem. It's getting harder and harder uh, in this industry. But that isn't a question. So how upset am I uh, reasonably allowed <clears throat> to get if no characters of color survive the events of Last of Us Part Two? And thank you for letting me vent. Uh, I realized that, like this was something that bugged me a lot about Last of Us 1, and then I didn't bring it up in our Last of Us 2 conversation uh, because I had not revisited Last of Us 1. But I'm curious, as both of you have now finished the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I finished it last night. Hey, are there any black folks in that game? Well, <laughs> Patrick and I were discussing this very <laughs> issue last night after he finished. Yeah, there, uh, there are. Um do, yeah, we don't uh, have to get into hmm. spoilers, but uh, yeah, like, do you feel like those characters were developed? Do you feel like those characters? Well, were... are they all characters? That's your first question. Yeah, one oh. of them is a character. One of them is just a very big burly threat oh, fuck that off. you have to viciously kill and mutilate their face. Cool. Um, Good. I mean, yeah, I mean, like you know, <laughs> Last of Us Part Two you know, is a more diverse, like, cast of characters overall. But, like, this person's question is speaking specifically to, you know, the, the the presence and characterization of the black characters. And this is, like, very specifically noteworthy in, you know, you can argue all over the place over the last of us thriller or horror, but the horror genre in <clears> general <throat> has, like, a long fraught history with the presence of um, how they deploy black characters. There's a reason the trope of, mm-hmm. you know, the black guy is going to die. Um exists is because they are often just used as uh, violent fodder um, even ahead of the white violent fodder that is, that is often makes up um, a lot of horror. Um, and so, you know, is uh, the last of us one or two, like particularly egregious on that count? Like I think the first game, like definitely could have been 
more mindful of that. And this, the second one probably could be as well. Um, it tries to, you know, I guess, quote unquote, make up for it in other areas, but it's, I don't know. I don't know that it is necessarily as conscious of the history of black people <clears throat> in horror situations as it could be. And again, like when I pointed out one specific late game, uh, encounter to rob his like we were on a video call but his eyes went the equivalent of wide as i like recounted it because i had just gone gone through mm-hmm. to my playthrough um yeah so I'd, I'd forgotten the guy you have to fight um i think the so the other part of the the black always dies thing uh i remember that trope a lot from war movies and i think a lot of that also stems from the fact the presumed perspective was white mm-hmm. and a lot of times black characters died because they had to make a noble sacrifice uh that was the war movie move like if you go back and watch movies made yeah. during world war ii and immediately after the version of not racial reconciliation not equality it, just something much milder which it's- is that like Black people are people too, but also they are your friends, and they will they recognize their place, which is to serve you. Yeah, it's it's like a sublimation <clears throat> of attention, is what it is, right? Like it's like you know we know that there's a situation at hand, but in this moment, here's how we are going to like snap that that tension taut so yeah. that it can be useful to us instead of letting it knot up and and get in the way. Um, but I think the other issue with so. Just the media landscape in games is going to make a game like Last of Us come under extra scrutiny because when representation is bad across the board, these major projects don't get to say, well, lots of games are doing this. Like, this is just what our game is about. Like, not having, not not representing different perspectives is a choice, or it is at least a failure to improve the landscape of the discourse. But I think The Last of Us in particular... The dread and anxieties of The Last of Us have, to me, always been very white middle class centered. And a lot of that game, both its visions of horror and its visions of hope, are extremely uh, white American. And I think that makes it very easy for the game to sort of stumble into this thing where... It's like Jackson in The Last of Us 2, the the huge idyllic survival community. Mm -hmm. There are black characters in the background of those scenes, I'm pretty sure. But blackness doesn't exist in that space because the moment you introduce it, it changes the space. They just want want Jackson, Wyoming to be a good western frontier town where everyone's pitching in together and pulling in the same direction. And they all live in beautiful houses with white picket fences. And they've got, you know, their borders closed to the outside world. And if you say, okay, but a bunch of our main characters here, the people who you're going to be observing Jackson through their eyes, they're black. Immediately, yeah. Jackson either has to change and address the fact that, like, why don't these tensions that we know exist in our world exist in Jackson? And that what has to happened? be confronted in some way. Right. Or Jackson has to be a complicated place in the way that the world is a complicated place. And you you might not feel good about how one of your heroes or how one of your main characters has to navigate around your other heroes and your other sympathetic characters and sort of be trapped in their version of what an idyllic society is, even if it really doesn't answer their needs or speak to what they would prefer to see. Um, Last of Us just sidesteps that. 
and is like, you know, it'd be great is if we could all just live in our freeholds, you know, behind walls topped with razor wires, and we all go out on patrol together. And well, uh, it, yeah, we well, tips it to that's a one degree, to right? Where like, you know, there's the one guy, the one bigot in Jackson that they choose to highlight who like has a problem with two girls kissing. Um, but that's like the most you get in terms of like scratching at like what would be any sort of conflict between people other than just, well, the infected are bad. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that all adds up to me. Uh, I know y'all are going to do your last of us spoiler cast next week. Also, Rob, you have a piece up on the site now for, for, uh, folks who want to know your deepest thoughts on the way that that game ends. Um, you have any, do you have a way of pitching us that, that piece? Uh, yeah. So I think one of the funny arcs, and I think we've experienced a little bit of it here was that people would start playing this game and be like, Rob, I just don't, you know, I get your view is your view, but like, I love it. This is great. And I'm like, my response was always just keep going. Just (laughs) see what other treats this game has in store for you. Because for me, the place I was about six hours before the game ended, very different than the place I was by the time the credits rolled. And in that, like, it was such a botched ending that it didn't just say, okay, it has third act problems. The way it screws up its ending goes back and recasts basically, like, several key choices or implied choices throughout the game. And kind of make you wonder, like, what has any of this been about? Like, why is the why is the story about Ellie? What like what was the point of telling the story from Ellie's perspective at all if this is what they were going to do? But to get into all of that, you have to talk through the denouement of The Last of Us. So that's my piece. Explaining sort of how the end like The Last of Us relies on endgame reveals that if you have any sort of ability to read between the lines at the very heavy subtext early in the game, it reveals stuff you already knew. And so if you were looking for like, okay, but what's the deeper answer? What's the, what's the real thing driving these characters? The last of us doesn't have an answer. The obvious shit is the thing that is the, is the things that that game thinks are good. Give it a read. It's a good piece. People should, uh, especially as folks folks play through and finish the game. I feel like uh, Rob's perspective uh, on, on not just like the events here and what sits right versus what doesn't, but kind of the political subtext, the the underlying through lines, the ideological through lines there are, is really strong. So go read that piece. There was, the, there was a point as I was fin- just before I was finishing it where I was like, Rob, what if I just turned the game off right here? <laughs> it's fine. We're good. He's like, no. <laughs> You need to see the next, the final three hours. No. And I said, okay. Oh God! This is also a, a moment, really quick, to to we could talk briefly about that Polygon story and the Naughty Dog stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Patrick, you had some thoughts there. Do you want to do you want to summarize that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Well, the events that occurred happened just before I came uh, back um, from from my leave, but. Uh, Rob reviewed uh, The Last of Us Part Two for uh, for us and. There's been the the piece of Polygon is essentially over like this tension that appears has been playing out, not appears, has been playing out between critics, uh, fans. Uh, there's just like this game is being pulled at out a lot of a lot of threads in a lot of ways. Um, it, that has caused I think everyone expected that this game was going to cause a certain amount of consternation, consternation. Um, and it was just sort of like 
primed to be kind of like a bomb that went off, um, regardless of how, how you felt about it, liked it or didn't like it. Um, and anyway, like our contribution to the, uh, to, to the Polygon piece was just Rob confirming that, um, you know, his review of the <clears throat> game was pretty down on it in, in general. I think it was a very, I think he lays out his feelings on it very concisely and uh, very elaborately. Um, uh, you know how he feels and why he feels. Um, as a result of that, uh, Rob had to, I mean, Rob can speak to the specifics of what occurred next, but we, you know, we fielded a call from Sony's public relations department to, uh, uh, explain the review, talk through the review a bit. I guess, Rob, you can sort of contextualize how you felt about that that call specifically. Yeah, I mean, to me it was not... So for me, Patricia Hernandez uh, over at Polygon reached out asking about various things she'd heard about just slightly weird interactions people may have had with uh, Sony PR around The Last of Us. Um, and... My my suspicion is that this was also coming from other corners, like that there were other people sharing some stories. That, if you're uh, being asked, the reason you're being asked is because you're hearing whispers about other things. Yeah. And so I had had something unusual happen, which is that the day that review went up, somebody from Sony PR reached out and was like, hey, uh, we think some of these parts of your review just are unfair. And uh, like – my position was like, like basically the, the gist of it was uh, you don't seem to give the game credit for some of the meaningful improvements it makes over the last of us one, like graphics and uh, like enemy AI. And my position was like, and, and I was happy to write, write back and just explain like, eh, the graphics look better, but does the game look better? Right? Like do, does the texture resolutions, does the lighting, does that right. change? Does that move the needle? It doesn't for me. Uh, maybe it does for other people, but they have their review. I have mine. As for like enemy AI, again, I felt encounter design was just repetitive enough that the improvements to AI or enemy behavior didn't really register as hugely significant. But, like, that was no problem, and that was about it. Like, it was just kind of a, hey, you, you kind of dismissed some of the work we did. Uh, what's up with that? And my response was, I, I didn't dismiss it. Uh, I just don't think the improvements were quite as solid as you right. all thought. But congratulations. Like, you have, you have a hit on your hands. Uh, let me know if you want to talk more. And they were pretty chill. They were like, yeah, we disagree, but it is subjective. Uh, so have a good one. And that was that was it. Um, but I think some of the thing that probably drove that piece is like some naughty dog. Neil Druckmann needs Neil to be on Druckmann. Twitter less. Yeah, just needs bro. like that's that's the thing. Like this came on the heels of a weekend where Neil Druckmann appeared to be um, beefing with some people who were talking about his work. And that was a little bit strange, uh, and I think that was probably what was what was driving it. Obviously, the the example Patricia really gets into is um, the bizarre, like simmering feud between him and Jason Trier uh, that played out over Twitter. Uh, that really embarrassing uh, Troy Baker, <laughs> the, the man in the arena thing. Like, there's just Dude, you have there to was set some that up. corny you shit to happening. Say the Troy Baker, man in the arena thing. Yeah, there there was just some corny shit happening around this, and I think that prompted a piece just sort of asking, like, hey, has there been other sort of weird or defensive response right. that stands out? I will say one of the things that also jumped out, 
Alex Navarro is on Twitter saying that, you know, this is pretty normal from the perspective of those of us who were working in this industry like 15, 20 years ago. Wow. He also and, specifically said, um, <laughs> I, I would paraphrase like, wow, not enough of my colleagues have gotten these calls because they haven't written enough reviews that go off the general yeah. um, consensus, which, uh, uh, you know, is part of Alex being in the industry long enough to have done it enough times. Also, I think is, you know, in some ways is a is a, a noteworthy and uh, 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 correct critique that often reviews tend to be like roughly the same in general, at least on the first wave of outlets that review a title. Um, but yeah, the, these aren't like if you've done this for 20 years, you've maybe not you personally, but your editor has fielded a, a handful of these calls. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, they they happen. They still happen. They happened before. Um, they were a little more heavy handed in the past because there would be explicit um, threats that went alongside that in regards to like pulling ads, um, which that that part doesn't really happen these days because well, video games don't advertise as much. Um, advertising has I, changed. I feel like some of the politics around that really did change after what we now call Gerstmann Gate, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think yes. the Kane and Lynch thing blew up in such a toxic way that I think after that, and that's that's roughly where I came in, right? Like I started working in this field about a year after all of that happened. But I think specifically that's when I started listening to One Up because I was like, this story seems fucked up and I need to learn more about it. And that's how I stumbled into uh, One Up and all that shit. And here I am. But I that was such a weird and notable story at the time that I think prior to that, probably the sort of heavy handed tactics were maybe a little bit more common, but after well, so like I, so I, had, Jeff, I had a, I, I had alluded to on, on Twitter cause I, I couldn't remember the specifics of this story and, and some of this, I'm still going to get wrong. So I, apologies to history, I suppose. But like when I worked at one up, um, when I was the news editor there for less than a year before I went to MTV, but there was an instance in which the dynamics at one up were so fascinating because what would happen often is that, you know, EGM, would get games, you know, two, three months in advance because they had to review them and put it to print before those magazines went out. So, like, they were getting access to games, like, so early relative to what happens now where you get it, you know, two or three weeks before a game goes live. And EGM, what would happen is that EGM would get access to the games and then we would pick and choose, or the reviews staff would pick and choose EGM reviews to become the one-up review because then a new person didn't have to review right. that game that could just go up as the one up review alongside whenever the reviews for online could happen. But what would it, because the magazine stuff was known so early, um, it also meant that publishers knew well in advance, like what the scores of their games were going to be. And so there was a specific instance in which uh, EGM, um, Really didn't like the uh, the uh, first Assassin's Creed. I believe the the scores were something. I was trying to familiarize myself with it, but the scores were given like a low. The lowest one was a four out of ten. It was like a four, like a, a five point five, and like a six point five. So it was a pretty Damn. low yeah. on on that Jeez. game, especially the four. The four was even a, a, an outlier for even folks that had rightful criticism of that first game. And basically, um, like Ubisoft, like threw a, a shit fit over it. They threatened to pull a bunch of advertising, um, like. 
I believe then said that, well, actually, um, one up, one up is not allowed to publish. You cannot use this EGM review as the one up review. You are not allowed to like use that as part of like the online embargo. Like the way that it was settled was that like EGM then chose like the high, like they picked the highest review, like the highest score is like, okay, that'll be the one that becomes the one up review as like a compromise with Ubisoft. And they, Ubisoft's like selectively used, selectively allowed outlets to like hit their, different embargoes or go early on an embargo based on inside information they had because of this dynamic of magazines and online websites. And I tried to write an article about that and then Ziff management uh, killed it because they'd already, once I'd started asking questions, they were already, the understanding was that it was going to cost a lot of money for the company. And so they eventually sort of like killed the story. and was one of the reasons that I ended up like leaving that place. (laughs) But like, that was like a, that's like real, like that stuff as far as I know, that stuff really doesn't happen as much because that that, that financial tie is less there. Not that heavy-handed things don't occur. I know right, someone right, was right. sharing a story yeah, out of all this about you know some pr- pressure they'd heard from Square Enix about a Final Fantasy review, and we've heard murmurings of other stuff that have occurred. Yeah. So it still there's still stuff out um, there in terms of <clears throat> in terms of publishers trying to direct the way coverage goes. Is probably the broadest and safest way I can say it. Um, there's, there are stories that are not my stories to tell, but they're out there yeah. still, but it's not, you, you don't, you don't hear the advertising dollar stuff as much because so much of the site, so much of the, the industry has gotten away from endemic advertising, thankfully. Um, and because I, I think that like partly, um, we've managed to reconfigure the industry such that to even breach that we now have platforms on which we could drag them for it and it would cost them more money. Uh, well, at that it, point, right, but like right? Th- that kind of story would get out, right? right? That's like, exactly if it. You, Between if, like, Twitter if and there was a financial and, threat, yes, right. But something like this, where um, you know, on some level, you know, someone like Rob and I brushes off the the Sony conversation because well, it doesn't materially change right. anything that we're going to do. Also, but also we're used like used to it, yes. having done this for a long enough time. But it's also worth acknowledging that even as like we know that um, anyone we work with, we've done this long enough. It's like ah, whatever. That's just one of those like small costs of doing business, like they still sent us code for Ghost of Tsushima. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right, this all right. happened after but, that. But to be clear, like the moment- But, but, for, but especially for like, or, or go, I guess finish your thought. Yeah, the I thing is, I'll say is like, it's not like that hasn't happened the other way before, right? Which was right. because of our coverage of Detroit Become Human before Detroit Become Human came out, we didn't get code for that. They, they like dragged me on a month long- we just have to get on the phone and knock this thing out. I talked to someone in person at a Judges Week event, and then finally got on the phone with someone. And like the result was like, uh, yeah, we're just not. We're just, it's not going to work out this time, Austin. Sorry. Um, and and because of that, like the specific instance why I think this is a great example of how this stuff is still important to to kind of fight about sometimes. We didn't get to publish Yusef Cole's piece on that game and on its handling of race and its handling of kind of its civil rights narrative until two weeks after that game had come out, at which point that piece doesn't do doesn't get a lot of eyeballs on it. Like that's just the it could have been the best piece Yusef's ever written. I don't think it was. Yusef's written incredible pieces. It's a, it's a strong piece. Um, but it doesn't get the eyeballs on it that it deserves because the window for people caring about reading about Detroit has closed by at least a week, probably by two weeks, because it's like two yeah. weeks after the embargo, uh, uh, you know, wraps. Um, and that's a piece that 
if we'd gotten that code ahead of time, he could have led that conversation. We could have had a black voice at the front of that conversation around that game, helping to shape what people thought of when they thought of that game and helping to shape the discourse around what it means to make a game about civil rights. And instead, that voice, his black voice, doesn't get to participate in the conversation when it's at its peak. And 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 that stuff is not untargeted or un or, or that's not an accident do you know what i mean they knew that we would probably p- put a writer on it who would be critical of the way it handled those issues um uh, and it's not the only time I, we, i've talked about the call of duty stuff when after the call of duty preview and that was an interesting and tricky one i think speaks a little bit to some of the last of us stuff also um the call of duty preview last year after after at uh, e3 i published was really um, or as was before E3, because it was announced before E3, was really skeptical and fairly negative of the ways in which that event promised, you know, thoughtful political intrigue and and handling these issues in a new way for the series. And then was like, and these guns fucking sound dope. Uh, like, you know, violence is going to be treated this very special way. And also, blah! And like that combination really set me off. Um, but the thing that would have been really interesting in that preview to get into would have been, and then I played the multiplayer and fucking loved the multiplayer. Let me wrestle with that. But I couldn't do that because the multiplayer segment was embargoed. embargoed. And so part yeah. of that conversation with PR from Activision was like, awesome, we saw you have a good time. I was like, motherfucker, I couldn't write about the good time I was having. <laughs> I, I had a bad time oh, in the event. Last of Us. And yeah. la- I and couldn't that is talk the, about the best parts of the game. This is what yeah. I'm talking about, Rob. This is why I bring this up. because it, it loops in in that exact way. And those embargoes are often meant to encourage you to only be able to talk about the stuff that they think that you'll like, uh, and yet there here are times at which it, like it means that the writing ends up being worse or or, or less compa- you know comprehensive in some ways. Um, anyway, uh, Patrick, you were going to say something else here. Well, too. the last thing I want to say was that even you know having been in this you know this uh, this job long enough to brush that stuff off, the reason it's worth pointing out and pointing out that it's un- it happens but is uncommon is that especially if you are a smaller outlet, if you are don't know that this happens before and you like. It is still an application yes. of some measure of power by even having the conversation. Um, uh, and so discussing that it occurs, trying to wrestle with why that might be a problem, even if it doesn't materially impact anything that Vice does in terms of covering Sony or any other game going forward. I don't. I want to, you know, it is worth disclosing that and discussing it and wrestling with that so that other places also can wrestle with that and and know that when they have those conversations going forward. Yeah. Otherwise, it, you may be under the impression that like, oh, I guess this is just what we all do. We just sort of have to, you know, I don't know. It's just no, worth listen, acknowledging so that folks that, that are new. Yeah. yeah, fucking push back on that shit. I do not have the time to go into it all. I mentioned it on the recent Branching Narratives podcast with Jeff Green. Um, uh, but there was a point at which Rockstar went back channel on us using some old connects to try to put pressure on us for being negative about not even being negative for raising the labor issue. Uh, and we got like an executive here at Vice trying to put pressure on us to try to keep us from reporting on the labor stuff or writing about it critically in any way. Um, and I threw a fucking fit. Like that was the closest I'd cut. I was on vacation when it happened. Thank God. <laughs> Otherwise I would have walked out. Um, uh, but when I came back, I had a very serious meeting with my boss. My boss was not part of the, my boss was great. My boss had, had done her best to shield us from this shit. Um, but I basically said, if this ever happens again, we're done. And it, ne- it has not happened again. I, I don't think that person will ever be in contact with us again in any, in any meaningful regard. So if you're in a position where you, you are like surprised it's happening and it feels bad, 
make sure that you make that known, like fight for that, for that independence. If you're in an editorial role at a site, if there's any sort of fuckery happening, you are in your rights to push back on that shit. And also if you're a writer, you shouldn't be taking that call. An editor or a publisher ideally should be taking that call. No one on editorial should have to have to do that shit. I'm speaking quickly because I think y'all have a meeting to get to, unfortunately. Yeah. So we're going to have to wrap this one up. We only got through we only got through four questions of this question Great. bucket deep dive. Classic <laughs> question bucket deep dive. As always, you can send your questions to gaming at uh, wait, gaming at vice.com. I almost said idlethumbs.com. That's not true what? at all. That's because we're doing a it's because we're doing a ruination cast. <laughs> Except we didn't have a timer. We should get a timer next time. We should do a timed question bucket episode. Awesome. Locker, noted lover of podcast timers. I love yeah, but the la- you know I love when, I, when I brought that up, the amount of the amount of <laughs> shit I got. Mm. <laughs> we did you know, a really great good. discussion about this, but um, somebody put us on a clock. That did happen. <laughs> uh, gamingadvice.com is the address. Make sure you use the subject question, otherwise I will. Will not see it because we have a billion like, spam emails in there and you just, I can't see them and it won't be caught up by the filter. I'm at Austin underscore Walker. You can follow us on Twitter.com slash waypoint. Go read Rob's piece in The Last of Us 2. Rob, where can people find you? At Rob Zachney. Patrick. At Patrick Klepek. Kato. Go go read my Yokotaro interview. Go read your, yeah, go read Good. Patrick's Yokotaro interview. Uh, Kato. We'll talk about it. Uh, at A underscore Kato underscore. What was that? I don't know. <laughs> appears on Twitter. Uh, you, as always, thank you to, to Bowen for letting us use the track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Find out more about that at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. All right, everybody. Uh, I hope everyone has a safe and secure uh, holiday weekend. Uh, please be safe this weekend. I'm begging you all to be safe this weekend. Uh, and also, fuck capitalism. Go home. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns all right. And maybe if you've got a glass jaw, the arena is not for you. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I meant to mention that it's also the name of Tom Brady's documentary series. Oh, what is it? Oh, of course it is. It's called The Man of the Arena. Of course it is. It is. So I, I know. I it, it was in my head and then I lost it and I'm so mad. I can't believe Troy Baker is going to play Tom Brady in the inevitable Tom Brady <laughs> video game. <laughs> Adaptation. Sucks when you got a five, if you got five rings Dude, and fucking, a superhuman immune system, and yet you still got all those haters. You got all those fucking haters <laughs> bringing you down. Get the fuck out of here. Take the dub. Take the dub and move on. All right. Uh, all right. All right. Bye. Have a good one, y'all. Bye. Bavarian cream. So, what are those? They are genetically modified grapes Good. to taste like no. cotton candy. What? And here's the thing. They do. They taste 
One hundred percent. So you've like, had, so you've had them. Yeah, because they look like green grapes. They look like tiny green grapes. So you've purchased like, them accidentally. Yes. So you, you you're like, Jesus. oh, tiny green grapes, cool, cotton candy grapes. That's probably like bullshit, right? Like, right, right, like, like, like the cutesy. Oh, we need a brand. Yeah, How do we right. stand yeah. out in the grape market? Yeah. No, they taste exactly like cotton candy, but they're the great, and it's fucked up. You're like, like it's one. Of, if you're not prepared for it, it's one of the most horrifying right. bites you can. Like, it's one thing to, like, sit down with a drink and forget that you got, like, you got iced tea instead of a soda or vice versa. Like, oh, that's not the feeling I wanted in my mouth. It's yeah, this is like the classic vodka instead of water. Vodka trick. instead of water, right. Yeah, sure. But this is this is worse than that. At least with <laughs> vodka, after I drink it, I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. I'm a little buzzed. <laughs> well, not- <laughs> Cotton candy grapes would just ruin whatever meal I was trying to have or whatever snack I was trying. Because you, then you're left with, like, a bowl of grapes, right? And you're like, well, am I going to eat them? What am I supposed to do with these? Oh, yeah, these went straight into the trash. Like, because <laughs> here's the thing, like... What a weird thing to do. Like, cotton candy sucks. Like, yes. it's, okay, well, like, it's, it's a cute... Kids enjoy it because it's fun. You it's have the whole machine go... Yeah. yeah. But there's nothing to it. And, like, people eat a little bit, and then they feel like shit. And they're like... Yeah, you want... Either. Cotton candy is the... Like, every five years, you want someone else to make the dumbass decision to yeah. buy it. So you're like, can I have a piece? And you're like, hmm. Yep. Good for five years. Like, yes. that's what cotton candy is. Yes. So, the notion that somebody was like, here's, shot. here's our idea. Right. Like, grapes and cotton candy. Uh, Hun, did we figure out whether or not there, it's a fully GMO thing, or is it, like, soil treatment? Yeah, okay. So, it's bread. Like, it's <laughs> the, 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 they are, that, that is the grape. That is the essence of the grape. I hate so it. So it's just super sweet. Part the, part of what's confusing about this is the fact that like cotton candy. So much of the experience of cotton candy is that it's got that specific texture, how, yeah, which it's, I it's, feel like is like half of the taste, honestly, because it's just sugar. It's, it's a huge part of the mouth profile, right? Right. But it doesn't. It doesn't just taste like a spoonful of sugar, right? It does not, have a not different. Quite. Yeah. Yeah. It's been stretched and right. threaded. Weird. I'm just trying to even imagine like what anything. a grape that tastes like that tastes like, feels like. It's now I want to get some. <laughs> like, I mean, we oh, need yeah. to I know. Like, we <laughs> have the experience once. Yeah. Inoculate yourself against this version of cotton candy. <laughs> right? like, it's like you know, you go to a kid's birthday party. Yeah. You're like, give me a piece of that cotton candy, but also then you see like cotton candy grapes. Buy some and be like, I just I must know. I must and know. then. I'll go look. I'm going to look at the grocery store this week. I'm going to see if I can find some. I was going to say, let's do it at the next live show. And then I was like, well, who knows when that'll be. <laughs> so I'll go look. Save it for a save point. Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> bless you. Ah. All right. It's so time. dusty and Time that is. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah, though. They do have rainier cherries at the store. So... Life Those good. ones taste like a mountain. Over 12 <laughs> years, 100,000 plants were created and grown in test tubes for developing the cotton candy variety of grape. Uh, in 2010, IFG patented the grape and began licensing it to growers, including California grower, Grapery. <laughs> Grapery. I want pink. I want cotton candy wine. <laughs> what? What'd you say? 
Make Rob, those Rob, cotton so candy. So when Rob, when Rob says those grapes went straight in the trash, what he meant was he put them into a bucket and then began stepping on them with his feet yeah, uh-huh. so he could start the process of creating his cotton candy wine. Yeah, uh-huh. I am curious about what that wine would be. Someone should do it. It has to exist. Someone right? has to have done it, right? Yeah. Probably not, because how recent are these things? Like... To do, cause, you know what I mean? Like, it takes multiple generations of uh, mm-hmm. growth to produce viable, like, wine grapes. Now, I don't know if those rules apply 20, to the miracle that is the cotton candy grape. 2010 is when it was licensed um, out. So, we're looking Someone at a 10-year... Ten, ten um, nine months ago is trying to make... Uh, is trying to do it. I, I have not... I don't see an update here. They don't. Okay. Oh, um, I have friends that say it's okay, not great, lol. Just being nice. Probably not worth trying again. I don't like it at all. I Carnival got candy. Zero. Our popular got- cotton candy flavored wine is made with grapes from the Great Lakes growing region. Go. This wine is slowly fermented to keep the natural cotton candy flavor of these grapes. Pairings. <laughs> pork and poultry dishes. Oh, sure. Was, yeah. Uh-huh. How great. to drink. Cold. Well, Over okay. ice. Because <laughs> that, yeah. Uh-huh. You're not having a nice like. Find a store near glass. you, Indiana only. Don't live in Indiana. Wow. We should. You should I go. My parents, my parents can snag some. Yeah. <laughs> in, Indiana just did some new lockdown stuff. I think I'm screwed on that front, but maybe I can. Maybe I could buy it. I'm <laughs> Rob, I know. I'm going to. Can I get Rob a subscription to the cotton candy wine, <laughs> in which I know, <laughs> son of a bitch, he does not want it, but it shows no. up every month. What are you going to do? Regardless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, time that is. Uh, forty-five. Hold on, hold on. There, yeah, I'm right. there. I got I it. Do it. I can I do it. Forty-five. All right. Nice. Very exciting stuff. <laughs>